We're going to finish our just short two-part series on the spirit of Christmas out of Philippians chapter 2. And what I'd like to do again this morning, as I did last week, is have you follow along as I read the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2. And as we think about the spirit of Christmas, again, we, are, we were wondering, uh, as we began last week, we hear a lot about that this time of year, the Christmas spirit. Is it attainable? Is it real? Is it tangible? And is it biblical? Is it something that is found, described in the Bible? And I believe that the best place that we can find a description of the spirit of Christmas is by looking at the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2, where we are introduced to the attitude of Jesus Christ, the one who came to earth at Christmas time. So follow along with me as I read. Therefore, Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in spirit, and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Last week, we looked at the first five verses, and we saw that Paul was really calling on the church at Philippi to come together in unity to lay aside their differences and to allow the Spirit of Christ to create this, this oneness, this one mind, this, this mutual love, this one purpose amongst them. And the only way to do that is by continually being mindful of the attitude that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had. That He was selfless and that He was humble even though He was God. And, and Paul is saying to the Philippians and to us, let's as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, adopt that attitude every day of our lives. Let's have that attitude. Let's have that mindset. Let's have that disposition towards one another that Jesus Christ had towards us. Many years ago, one of my mentors spiritually made this statement. He said, your attitude, not your aptitude, will determine your altitude. Jesus Christ lived his life with a great attitude. He was selfless and humble every day that he's existed. 
And especially as he came to be born in Bethlehem as a little baby and take upon himself this human flesh. In fact, one of the reasons I was drawn to this passage of Scripture is I think that if you and I are truly going to appreciate Christmas, if we truly are going to appreciate Christmas, what what it means, what Jesus, the Son of God, has done for us, we've got to really be mindful and keep at the forefront of our minds who Jesus was and who he is. That, that actually even makes Christmas even more mind-blowing. Because it's, it's one thing for us to just sort of reflect on the baby, Jesus, that was born in Bethlehem to this young couple, Joseph and Mary. It's another thing to remember who this baby is. And that's where Paul then goes back to, beginning in verse 6. And by the way, there is no greater portion of Scripture that really teaches us as Christians good, solid Bible doctrine like Philippians chapter 2. And many times you even hear from Christians that say, ah, I don't want to be in a church that teaches doctrine and doctrine's dry and doctrine's boring. Folks, if you think Philippians chapter 2 is boring, then I just can't relate with that because I don't think there's any more exciting a part of Scripture than what we're looking at here these last couple of weeks. And it's nothing but doctrine. And yet it's stuff that you and I as Christians have to know, we have to believe, we have to think about, we have to be mindful about, because it is the very foundation and bedrock of what we say we believe in. And so let's go through this today and look at some of the things that Paul reminds us of. First, he says that this baby born in Bethlehem always existed, verse 6, in the form of God. It means that he always and forever was God. And that any time that he expressed the essential nature of God and allowed us to visibly see him, It was nothing but God. It was nothing but deity. Paul could not be using any stronger language to basically teach us that the one born in Bethlehem was God of very God. That Jesus Christ did not start to exist when he was born in Bethlehem, but he has always existed because he's the eternal God. And so even in the Old Testament, We believe that Jesus Christ appeared in what we call Christophanies in the Old Testament, where he would assume a a human form and he would appear to people throughout the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord or the messenger of God. And they would worship him. And that's one of the reasons I tell people you can always differentiate in the Old Testament whether it was just a mere angel Or it was the angel of the Lord, it was God, it was Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. Because when it was just a mere angel, if a human being started to even think about worshiping him, the angel would be like, no, 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 no. I'm just an angel. I'm just a created being. Do not worship me. The angel would never accept worship. But when it was the angel of the Lord, when it was Jesus Christ in the Old Testament... He would accept worship from human beings. So Paul is reminding us that this baby is God that came. And then he says, and this 
God, Jesus, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He's saying the leading thought in Jesus' mind was that even though he is equal with God the Father, equal with God the Holy Spirit, that he's the same, that he's identical, that there is no uh, inferiorness, if you will, uh, from Jesus to God the Father or God the Spirit, that he did not grasp on to that. He did not hold on to that as if it was something he could lose, but he also did not hold on to that and, and just to benefit, if you will, or profit himself. That he, as God, wanted to use his position as God, his power as God, what resources he had as God to bless and benefit and profit others. This is what drew Jesus from the glories of heaven to that manger in Bethlehem. And isn't it interesting, when you think about this term grasp, that Jesus is giving us an example that he let go of what he couldn't lose because he could never lose to be God. and He could never not be God. So he just lived loosely with that. He let it go and let him be a benefit and profit to others. And yet, even as Christ followers, not just anyone, but as Christ followers many times, we go through life trying to grasp, trying to hold on, trying to cling to the things that we know we're going to lose. We know we can't hold on to. And yet somehow we get caught up in the philosophy of the world that I'm going to try to hold on to what I know I, it's not permanent. It's, it's something I'm going to have to let go of one day. I mean, whether it's relationships, material things, or whatever, there are certain things that the reality is we can't take those with us or we can't permanently hold on to those things. And yet we hold them so tightly as if we can. And yet the thing or things that we can never lose, we seem to not want to, you know, let go or rest in those things like Jesus did. And then it goes on to say, but he emptied himself. It means again that he deprived himself as God by adding humanity. Jesus never surrendered his deity. Jesus, unlike what some teach, never ceased to be God for one second. The way he, you'll notice, emptied himself or deprived himself or set himself aside and didn't think of himself first was by adding humanity. I mean, and you think about that. If, if you were God, adding humanity would sort of like, you know, certainly not be the best thing. But again, Jesus did this because his whole attitude has always been like the other persons of the Godhead, humble and selfless. The whole reason why God created the world in the first place and created you and I and put mankind on it wasn't for himself. God is self-existent. God could have went through the entire eternity 
without ever creating any one of us and the world that we exist in or the universe we exist in. And he would have been perfectly fine and fulfilled and satisfied and content within himself. The reason he did all this was for us. And the reason why Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven and the worship of the angels and, and, the, and all of that and that perfect environment and added humanity so that he could experience Hunger and thirst and pain and rejection and, and, and all of these things that you and I as human beings will experience minus a sinful nature was because of us. Not for Him, but for us. He emptied Himself. It's a challenge to us as Christ followers. When was the last time we set ourselves aside for others? When was the last time we deprived ourselves of something so that we could benefit and profit others? This is the attitude of Jesus, Paul says. This is what the spirit of Christmas is all about. It's not in thinking about us first and foremost, but in thinking about others. Notice that Jesus, again, didn't just take upon himself human nature, but come here then as, say, the king of the world or the most powerful human being on earth and tell everybody else what to do. No, Paul says, here's the other amazing thing. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. He came willingly, voluntarily to serve others, not to be served, even though he was God. Which is what, again, the message of the Bible is. Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. And this is why Jesus calls us to be servants. To give up ourselves to serve others. To give up ourselves for the sake of others. And that's not something that in any way is, is, is dishonoring, if you will, or degrading. Jesus took the idea of being a servant and, and made it honorable and gave it dignity. You see. Because that's the way he lived his life. By looking like other men. Now again, what Paul now is going to get at is a very important theological principle. And that is that outwardly, visibly, Jesus looked just like you and I or any other human being. And yet, inside, he's God of very God. The only thing that was missing, if you will, from Jesus was a sinful nature. That Jesus could not sin because, again, he didn't have the capacity to sin. He's God. But it also means that in no way was Jesus not 100% human. He was, except for he did not have a sinful nature. It's the whole reason why we, again, the core foundation bedrock of our belief as Christians is the virgin birth. Why is the virgin birth so important? Why was it so important that when Jesus came, he came obviously through, through a mom carrying him, but 
He wasn't born from the seed of a man, a human being. He was born, as Gabriel told Mary and Joseph, through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Because in no way would Jesus then be corrupted or tainted from the sinful nature that is passed down from one generation to another through the seed of men. That's why the virgin birth is so important. And that's what Paul is reiterating here. But what he has already said is basically this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born in Bethlehem, was 100% God. Always has been, always will be. And so anyone that tries to detract or take away from the deity of Jesus Christ is teaching falsely, is teaching unbiblical doctrine when they do not recognize or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is 100% God. But there's also another very important doctrine here. And that is that Jesus Christ also is 100% human. Notice it says at the end of verse 7, Paul says, He shared in our human nature. And so again, anyone that teaches that Jesus Christ, the baby born in Bethlehem, was anything less than 100% human, that is a false teaching, that is a false doctrine, that is less than what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. And yet, can I tell you, we live in a world today, even in Christianity, in churches all across this world, in seminaries, in Bible colleges, where ministers are being trained that are teaching future ministers and future pastors and future, you know, Bible professors, that in some way Jesus Christ was not 100% deity or 100% humanity. So these doctrines, if you will, that's why they're so important that we get them nailed down. Because even amongst churches and institutions today, you will come across many who believe today that Jesus Christ is not 100% God or 100% human. And anything less than that is an unbiblical, heretical doctrine, period. I don't know how many of you saw this last week. And maybe some of you aren't very familiar. It's no big deal. But one of the, used to be, the bastions of conservative theology in our country where men and women could go and get a good, solid Bible doctrine and teaching was Wheaton College. Did you hear what happened in Wheaton College this past week? They had to dismiss a professor from Wheaton College because he was teaching that the God of the Bible and that the God of Christians and that the God of Islam or the God of Muslims is the same God. Folks, this isn't being taught in some... This was being taught in Wheaton College. And again, I know that might not mean anything to you, but Wheaton College for years was a place you could go and you could know, I'm going to get the good stuff there. You can't count on that anymore. That's why this stuff is so 
important. Notice Paul also says in verse 8, he humbled himself. And notice that when Paul's describing, again, the attitude of Jesus, he says, Jesus emptied himself. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus was never forced to do anything. Everything that Jesus did as God to come to earth and go through everything he did, he did willingly. He did voluntarily. Obviously, as God, no one was going to make Jesus do anything. No one could make Jesus do anything. But again, it shows us the mindset of, of God. It shows us the humility of God. It shows us the love of God for us. Because everything that Jesus did, he did because he wanted to, not because he had to. The word humbled here means to stoop to our level or literally to bow down. Wow. That's what Jesus did for us. In fact, I love that verse in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul says to the Corinthians, For you know that though he was rich, he became poor for our sake, so that through his poverty we might become rich. I love that description of what Jesus did. Jesus was wealthy beyond measure as God. And yet, he allowed himself to take on humanity and leave the glories of heaven and that environment and come down here to this messy, sin-filled, cursed world filled with sinful human beings who would not respect him or honor him or treat him as he deserved as God. And yet he went through all of that And as Paul goes on to say, notice this, he became obedient to the point of dying. He was willing to submit himself and in a sense, attentively listen to the leading of the Father and the Spirit all the way to the point of dying as God. This is the extent of Jesus' humility and selflessness and love for us. This is what Christmas is all about. This is why Christmas should, again, blow our minds as Christians. When we begin to think about who it is and who it was who came as that very humble baby in that manger in Bethlehem. Paul goes on to say he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most excruciating, painful method of torture and death and murder that maybe human beings have ever devised in their wicked minds was crucifying somebody. In fact, if you ever want to really get a picture of what Jesus did for us. Take the time to study the subject of crucifixion. And I even go a step further. Study the wounds of the man on the Shroud of Turin. I don't want to get into necessarily that. That's for another time and another place. But yes, I do believe that the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. And if you even study 
the amount of blood and wounds that the man on the shroud had. It's a humbling, sobering thing to think about what Jesus went through for us. No wonder the prophet Isaiah said, looking ahead in time, that he was so disfigured and marred, he didn't even look human anymore. I mean, between the scourging and then the crucifixion itself, his body was literally covered in blood from his head to his feet. He was the Lamb of God that sacrificed his blood so that you and I could be saved and be set free. This is what Jesus did. This is what Christmas is all about. It's not just about that baby in Bethlehem. It's who it was that came to earth and why he came. And notice then, Paul says this, verse 9. As a result, God exalted him. Elevated him, Jesus, to the highest place beyond measure in the universe. And notice Paul says, he gave him the name. And that's very important in the original language. It's not a name. It is the name. It is the name that distinguishes his name from any and all others. It is a name, Paul says, that is over and above and superior to every other name. I hope that's what you believe today. Because as we've talked about the spirit of Christmas, by looking at the attitude of our God Jesus Christ and all of his selflessness and humility and what he was willing to do for us, not for himself. Yet, Paul says this, because of Jesus' willingness, because of his humility to allow himself to be made so low, even though he was so high, that God the Father was going to make sure that from that day forward, Jesus Christ would be honored in a way that no one else was ever in the universe. And that that leads us in to these last couple verses on the purpose of Christmas. Because there is a purpose for Christmas. And again, it's more than just some little baby being born in Bethlehem to Joseph and Mary. No, when Jesus came at Christmas time, it's like God drew a line in the sand and said, from here on out, every human destiny, every human being's destiny will be tied to your attitude towards Jesus Christ. Which is why he goes on to say in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, the words so that speak about purpose, the express specific purpose of why Jesus came and humbled himself and all of that was going to be so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, that means without exception. There's coming a day in history where God is going to make sure that every knee is going to bow. That means that every created being, every angel that was ever created, every human being that was ever created, there's coming a time and a moment in history 
where every knee is going to bend. It means to acknowledge in a reverential way, in a respectful way, in an honorable way, I'm going to have to acknowledge and recognize that Jesus Christ is above all. He is the greatest. There is no one else like Jesus. God guarantees that. And notice he even says, in case we missed it, he says, this acknowledgement is going to be universal. It's going to be in heaven, meaning all the saints of all time, as well as all the angels that did not fall, they will acknowledge Jesus Christ. Then he says, on earth, which speaks of those redeemed and unredeemed, maybe during the kingdom age, they will bend their knee as well. And then he says, and under the earth. Speaking of all those who reject Jesus Christ, who do not believe in him, as well as all the demonic beings, one day they will bend their knee and they will reverentially and respectfully give honor to Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of Christmas. And then he goes on, and every tongue, again, without exception, will confess. The word confess means to openly, publicly admit and agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. That word has become so lifeless even in the church today. We throw that word Lord around, but it doesn't have as much, I think, impact and meaning in our lives as it should. Because one day, we're all going to have to openly admit, agree that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the ruler of the universe. He is the greatest. He is supreme above everything else. It's all about Jesus. I belong to Him. He decides, not me. I give up myself for Him. He's my Lord. And then Paul goes on to say, this is all to the glory of God the Father, to the honor, praise, and worship of the Father. As I was meditating on this and thinking about this, God brought some thoughts to my mind I want to share with you this morning. The Bible very clearly says that one day, no matter how we stand in relationship to Jesus Christ, there's going to come a moment in time where even again, if we don't believe in him or we we reject him and all of that, we will have to bend our knee and our tongue will have to confess that he is who he claimed to be. And we will have to say that out loud. Everyone, including including Satan. Everyone, no one, again, without exception, no one is excluded with that. But that doesn't mean, folks, 
That just because there's coming that moment in time where that acknowledgement is given, even by the demonic beings and even by unredeemed humanity, that that means everybody spends eternity with God. Because please think through this with me. The Bible teaches that though everyone will have to acknowledge that, that doesn't mean everybody wants Jesus. And only those who want Jesus will spend eternity with him. Those who don't want Jesus, even though they'll have to acknowledge who he is, but if they don't want Jesus, that's what eternal separation from Jesus is all about. That's what hell's all about. It's a place where if you don't want me, then you can be deprived of me and separated from me for all of eternity. And folks, you and I don't even, we can't even as Christians begin to fathom the emptiness, the hollowness, the doom that that is to live for all of eternity without God being involved in our lives at all. Because even now on earth, even those who don't believe in Jesus now, they have some kind of contact and connection with God. But in hell... There will be no connection with God because that's the choice they made. They did not want God. Even though one day they will have to acknowledge him, they will not want him. You say, I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. Really? Really? Have you ever thought about the fall of Lucifer? Lucifer was an angel that literally was as close to God as any of, any of God's created beings ever was. He, he never, never experienced cursed, the cursed earth and all of that. He was living in a perfect environment, heaven. He was living in the presence of the glory of God. He saw God and worshipped God since he was created. There was no sin around Lucifer. There was nothing negative around Lucifer. It was all good. And yet Lucifer came to a place where in that perfect environment, he said, I don't want you, God. That's why can I say it's so faulty for us to reason as human beings that if, if I just or this person just had a better environment, they would choose God. Environment has nothing to do with it, folks, because if anybody had the most perfect environment ever to come to God and stay with God and believe in God, it was Lucifer and those angels that left with him when they fell. That's why people say, well, I don't understand. Why does God allow us to go through suffering down here and allow us to trudge through this, this earth and, and struggle like we do? Because, folks, the first way didn't work. It didn't matter if there was a perfect environment. There were still beings that said, I don't want you, God. The way you and I learn to want God is when we live on an earth like this and we realize that all those choices that aren't God bring us no fulfillment and satisfaction. They bring us nothing. 
The only thing that really fulfills us and satisfies us is God. And so we learn as we accept Christ and as we grow in Christ and as we learn from Christ that the only thing that really matters is to choose Christ. And that's why we come to a place in our life where we truly want Him. Is that what you want? You know, again, Christmas time is a time where we think about, what do we want? People maybe even in our, in our family or our friends say, hey, what do you want for Christmas? And we're usually thinking about the gifts and presents and all that until we get down to make our little list. Well, I, I would appreciate this or like this or whatever. No, I'm not, not, not think that's bad. That's not bad at all. But I think as Christians especially, we, we need to come back and realize that Hopefully what we really want is Jesus. Because one day, that's going to be the folks that spend eternity with God in heaven. Not those that just have to acknowledge him and recognize who he is, because everyone's going to do that. Even the demons, even Satan is going to do that. Even those, again, that reject Jesus. They're going to have to do that. But at the end of the day, heaven is going to be filled with people who, more than anything else, want Jesus. That's what it's all about. That should be, more than anything, what we want for Christmas. That's why I love the attitude of Paul, who even as a Christian says, I've come to a place in my life, Paul said, in the book of Philippians, where I give up everything else to just know Jesus more, to have more of him, to know his power and, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Just more of you, Jesus. That's all I want. Just give me Jesus. Oh, that you and I would have that attitude. That God, at the end of the day, though it's, Awesome to give gifts, and it's, you know, it's great to get gifts. The most important gift we could ever be given is the gift of Jesus Christ. The most important gift you and I could ever share with somebody else is the gift of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul exclaimed in the book of 2 Corinthians, Thanks be unto God for his indescribable gift. That's the spirit of Christmas. Let's pray. God, I pray today that more than anything else, we want Jesus. Yes, one day, your word clearly teaches that every angel, every human being ever created will have to acknowledge and recognize by bending the knee and by their tongue confessing that you are Lord and that your name is above every name. But even though that day is coming, that's not really what determines our destiny. Our destiny and where we spend eternity is determined by our attitude towards Jesus. Do we really want Him? Or like Lucifer, we know Him, 
We know who he is. We believe that's who he is. We acknowledge that's who he is. But we don't want him. That's really what it comes down to. And that's why at Christmas time, God drew a line in the sand and said forevermore, destinies will be determined by our attitude towards Jesus. God, may we want you this Christmas. And may we realize, Lord, if if we have you in our life, Jesus, we already have the greatest gift we could ever be given. Help us to share that gift with others. Help us to demonstrate and express and have the attitude that Jesus Christ had towards others. Let us live with the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Christmas every day that selfless humility that drew our God down from the highest place in the universe to come to earth as a human being to be obedient even to the point of dying, dying on a cross for us. God, may Christmas even mean more to us this year when we remember who came for us. May we spend some time now worshiping you, honoring you, celebrating you, God, in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.